message is part of the media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. Today's teaching is by Pastor Daryl Ruick. morning. Today we're going to continue our series taking creative looks at the Lord's Supper. It is apparent that Jesus would never have us forget his death. At the communion table we are reminded of the painful scene each time we come. Paul said this to the Corinthians, an odd thing. I have determined to know nothing but Christ crucified. Now, I think Paul, we would all agree, has made some uh, very definitive and bold statements in his career. And he has earned the right to do so. This one, I think, is... um, is a critical statement. You know, Paul could have determined that he would know nothing but Christ fill in the blank. What word would you have chosen? Of all the things about Christ that you could say, this is all I, this is all I care about. This is the summation. When I think of Christ, this is the summation of, of what I think of. All things about about Jesus are summed up this way. What word would you use? Many of you are probably thinking like like I'm thinking. Maybe maybe love would have been a good one. He chose. I'm determined to know nothing but Christ crucified. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ is symbolically represented at the Lord's table. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ is, is the Lord's table because it's, it's there that we are to remind ourselves as often as we partake, broken, spilled out. Today we're going to take a different seat around the Lord's table and look at His communion in a different way. Uh, the hope is that we gain some sobriety and some appreciation for for that event that uh, we who have been uh, believers for maybe a little while can very easily take for granted. And it becomes a a Christmas story, an Easter story. It becomes a, a holiday story. But it's a true story. Now it's the last Sunday of the month and I'm well aware that our children are with us, our older children are with us today. And so kids... Let me talk to you for just a second, okay? Before I begin today's sermon, I, I want to be, be absolutely clear about something. The Bible says that there is no greater display of love than that one man would lay his life down for his friends. When we talk about the crucifixion, when we talk about the death of Jesus Christ, I want you to understand and I want you to remember for the rest of this morning while I'm talking that, that Jesus was God on earth and He chose to give His life 
as a sacrifice for you and for me. Because he, He's God, He could have walked away at any point. When it started to hurt, when it got painful, He could have stopped it. But Jesus, knowing that the sacrifice was, was needed for you and for me, He chose to endure the pain and the suffering. The Bible says that because of our sins, because of the, the things that we do wrong and the things that we do that, that, that are against God's commandments, that there has to be a penalty paid for that sin. When Jesus comes to earth, He pays that penalty. And the penalty, the Bible's very clear, the penalty has to be death. And so Jesus, when He comes to earth, knows He has to die. The way Jesus dies... Well, it's, it's, not, it's not an easy thing to think about. There were some, some very bad people that, that didn't believe Jesus was who He said He was. They didn't believe He was God. And so, and so they, they hurt Him. And then they killed Him. Remember, though, Jesus lays His life down. He does this for you and He does it for me. He could have stopped it at any time. It was his choice to sacrifice himself for you and me. Now, our creative way to look at the Lord's Supper today, typically you would see there's bread up here and there's a, there's a bowl. We, we have our bread today and we have, we have our bowl. And, and there's nothing magical about these. It's, it's bread and it's, it's Welch's grape juice. And a little later... Moms and dads and, and maybe some of you kids will, will come and enjoy communion. Um, these are symbols that represent what Jesus did so that we never forget what He did for us. They're, they're kind of hard symbols. They're kind of difficult. Um, this, you probably have already guessed, as our display represents the crown of thorns that, that we're going to talk about, that they, they made Jesus wear because he came and he said he was the, he was the king. And they said, okay, a king needs a crown. And they, and they made him a crown out of a, out of a thorny, wiry branch. I used a barbed wire. And these are just ice cubes. Miss Cretia made them with red food coloring. We're going to talk about how when they put this crown of thorns on Jesus... Yeah, it poked his head and, and it caused him to bleed. So these are symbols of what Jesus went through. All right. Like the gospel itself, the good news of the cross. And this is good news. The good news of the cross and this communion table can only be fully understood in light of the wicked and painful sufferings of Christ. A guy named Dr. C. Truman Davis gives a pretty detailed explanation of all that Jesus went through. We start at Gethsemane. The physical passion of Christ began at Gethsemane. Of the many aspects of his initial suffering, the one which of 
which is of particular physiological interest, is the bloody sweat. Interestingly enough, the physician, St. Luke, is the only gospel writer to mention this occurrence. He says, in being in agony, Jesus prayed longer and his sweat became as drops of blood trickling down upon the ground. He sweat blood, Luke 22. Every attempt imaginable has been used by modern scholars to explain away the phenomenon of the bloody sweat, apparently under the mistaken impression that it is simply impossible. A great deal of effort could be saved by just looking at some medical literature. Though very rare, the phenomenon called hematodrosis, or bloody sweat, is, is historically documented. Under, under great emotional stress, it can happen that the tiny capillaries, the tiny, tiny blood vessels in, in the sweat glands, they can break because of the stress, and they can mix the blood with the, the sweat. And you can, in this process, produce sweat with blood. The process alone could have produced marked weakness in Jesus and put him into shock. Although Jesus' betrayal and arrest are important portions of the passion story, the next event in the account, which is significant from a medical perspective, is his trial before the Sanhedrin, Caiaphas the high priest. Here, here the first physical trauma was inflicted. It's recorded that a soldier struck Jesus across the face for remaining silent when he was questioned by Caiaphas. The palace guards then blindfolded him, mockingly taunted him to identify them each as they passed. Can you see us? Can you see us? Who? Which one am I? They spat on him and they struck him in the face. Now we find him before Pilate. In the early morning, battered and bruised, Dehydrated and worn out from a sleepless night, Jesus was taken across Jerusalem to the praetorium of the fortress of Antonia, the seat of government of the procreator of Judea, Pontius Pilate. We're familiar with Pilate's actions in attempting to shift responsibility to Herod, the tetrarch of Judea. Jesus apparently suffered no physical treatment at the hands of Herod and was returned to Pilate. It was then, in response to the outcry of the mob, that Pilate, you'll remember, ordered Barabbas to be released and condemned Jesus to scourging, beatings, and eventually his crucifixion. Preparations for Jesus' scourging were carried out at Caesar's orders. The prisoner was stripped of his clothing, his hands tied to a post above his head. The Roman legionnaire stepped forward with what was called a flagrum or a flagellum. He held this in his hand. This was a short whip consisting of several heavy leather straps with small balls of lead attached near the ends of each strap. They would often also include jagged pieces of bone or rock. The heavy whip was brought down with full force again and again across Jesus' shoulders, back, and legs. At first, the weighted straps cut through the skin, but then, as the blows continued, they cut deeper into the subcutaneous tissues, producing first an oozing blood from the capillaries and veins of the skin, and finally, arterial bleeding from vessels in the underlying muscles. These small spheres of lead would produce large, deep bruises at first. 
that would be then broken open with subsequent blows. Finally, the skin on the back would be in ribbons. And the entire area was an unrecognizable mass of bleeding tissue. When it was determined by the centurion in charge that the prisoner was near death, the beating was finally stopped. But now the mockery begins. The half-fainting Jesus was then untied and allowed to slump to the stone pavement, wet with his own blood. The Roman soldiers saw a great joke in this provincial Jew claiming to be a king. They threw a robe across his shoulders and placed a stick in his hand for a scepter. They still needed a crown to make their travesty complete. Small flexible branches covered with long thorns, commonly used for kindling fires in the charcoal pits in the courtyard, were woven in the shape of a crude crown. The crown was pressed into his scalp, and again there was copious bleeding as the thorns pierced the very vascular tissue. After mocking him and striking him across the face, the soldiers took the stick from his hand and struck him across the head, driving the thorns deeper into his scalp. The irony here is great. The imagery should pain our hearts. Matthew says the robe was scarlet. Of course it was. Isaiah says that although our sins be like scarlet. Genesis says that at the sin of man the earth was cursed and the ground would show that curse as it bore now thorns. In this moment, Christ was draped in sin and the curse of all the earth. Finally, they tired in their sadistic sport and tore the robe from his back. The robe had likely already become adherent to the clots of blood and serum in the wounds and its removal just as in the careless removal of a surgical bandage would have caused excruciating pain. The wounds would again begin to bleed. We're on to Gagatha. In deference to Jewish custom, the Romans apparently returned his garments. The heavy cross beam made of wood, if not the entire cross weighing around 300 pounds, was tied upon his shoulders. The procession of the condemned Christ, the two other thieves, the execution detail of Roman soldiers headed up by a centurion began its slow journey along the route which we now today we know today as the Via Dolorosa. There would have been uh, four soldiers surrounding Jesus plus a placard bearer who would carry the board that displayed the charges against each of the convicts. In spite of Jesus' efforts to walk upright, the weight of the heavy wooden beam, together with the shock produced by the copious blood loss, was too much. He stumbled and he fell. The rough wood of the beam as he fell would have gouged into the lacerated skin of the muscles of his shoulder. He tried to rise, but human muscles had been pushed beyond their endurance. One scholar noted that the body of Jesus was likely the strongest human body on earth ever since sin had not corrupted it. 
be that as it may. The centurion, anxious to proceed with the crucifixion, selected a stalwart North African onlooker, Simon of Cyrene. Simon was a Jew who was undoubtedly in town for the Passover. He was called upon to carry the cross. Jesus followed, still bleeding and sweating, the cold, clammy sweat of shock. The 650-yard journey from the fortress of Antonia to Golgotha finally is completed. Prisoner was again stripped of his clothing except for a loincloth which was typically allowed the Jews. Removing his clothing undoubtedly opened his wounds once again. And it's not until now that the crucifixion actually begins. Jesus would be offered wine mixed with myrrh. This was a mild sedative, pain-relieving mixture. This would have been done by a group of, no doubt, wealthy women who took serious the, the Proverbs 31 charge to give this sort of drink to dying men to ease their pain. The soldiers weren't in any way concerned with the condemned man's pain, of course. They would allow this because nailing a perfectly lucid human to a beam was a difficult chore otherwise. Jesus refused the drink. Simon was ordered to place the cross on the ground, and Jesus was quickly thrown backward upon it with his shoulders now once again against the wood. The legionnaire would feel for the depression at the front of the wrist, and then drive a heavy, square, wrought iron nail through the wrist and deep into the wood. Quickly, he moved to the other side and repeated the action, being careful not to pull the arms too tightly, but to allow some flex and movement. The crossbar was then lifted into place at the top of the stipes and the, and the, the, the placard reading Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, would have then been nailed into place. After the wrist, the feet. The left foot was pressed backward against the right foot. With both feet extended, toes down, a nail was driven through the arch of each, leaving the knees moderately flexed. The victim was now crucified. The cross would be raised from the earth and dropped abruptly into a hole that had already been dug for it. Upon falling into the hole, a painful jolt to the entire body be rendered to the condemned. At this point, you are likely growing uh, a little weary of the length of just this description of the process. Imagine the trauma to the one who endured such because we still aren't done. Now we are on the cross. As Jesus slowly sagged down with more weight on the nails in the wrist, excruciating, fiery pain shot along the fingers and up the arms, igniting signals of trauma into the brain. The nails in the wrists were putting pressure on the median nerve, large nerve trunks which traversed the mid-wrist and hand. As he pushed himself upward to avoid the stretching torment, he placed his full weight on the nail through his feet. Again, there was searing agony, 
as the nail tore through the nerves between the metatarsal bones of his feet. At this point, another phenomenon would occur. As the arms fatigued, great waves of cramps swept over his muscles, knotting them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. With these cramps came the inability to, to push or pull himself upward. Hanging by the arm, the pectoral muscles, the large muscles of the, the chest, were paralyzed. And the intercostal muscles, the small muscles between the ribs, were unable to engage. Air could be drawn into the lungs, but could not be exhaled. Jesus fought to raise himself in order to get even one short breath. Finally, carbon dioxide level increased in the lungs and the bloodstream and the cramps would partially subside. Here we begin to hear his last words. Spasmatically, he was able to push himself upward to exhale and bring in life-giving oxygen. It was undoubtedly during these periods that he uttered the seven short sentences that are recorded in Scripture. The first, looking downward at the Roman soldiers, throwing dice for his seamless garment, he says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. The second, to the penitent thief, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. The third, looking down at Mary, his mother, he said, Woman, behold your son. Then turning to the terrified, grief-stricken, adolescent John, Behold your mother. The fourth cry is from the beginning of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He would have suffered hours of limitless pain, cycles of twisting, joint-rendering cramps, intermittent partial asphyxiation, and searing pain as tissue was torn from his lacerated back from his movement up and down against the rough timbers of the cross. Then another agony would have begun. A deep crushing pain in the chest as the pericardium, the sac around the heart, slowly filled with serum and began to compress the heart. Prophecy in Psalm 22:14 was being fulfilled. I am poured out like water, and all my bones out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. The end was now rapidly approaching. The loss of tissue fluids had reached a critical level. The compressed heart was struggling to pump heavy, thick, sluggish blood to the tissues, and the tortured lungs were making a frantic effort to inhale small gulps of air. The markedly dehydrated tissue sent their flood of stimuli to the brain. Jesus gasped his fifth cry. I thirst. Again, we read in the prophetic psalm, my strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue cleaves to my jaws and thou hast brought me into the dust of my death. A sponge now soaked in pasca, a cheap wine that was the staple drink of the Roman legionnaires, was lifted to Jesus' lips. His body was now in extremist pain and he could feel the chill of death creeping onto his tissue. This realization brought forth his sixth statement, possibly little more than a tortured whisper. It is finished. His mission of atonement had completed. Finally, he could allow his body to die. With one last surge of strength, 
he once again pressed his torn feet against the nail, straightened his legs, took a deeper breath, and uttered his seventh and last cry, Father, into your hands I commended my soul, my spirit. And after all, death. The common method of ending a crucifixion was by fracture. It's a technical term for the breaking of the bones of the legs. This prevented the victim from pushing himself upward. Tension could not be relieved from the muscles of the chest and rapid suffocation occurred. The legs of the two thieves next to him were both broken. But when the soldiers approached Jesus, they saw that this was now unnecessary. Apparently, In order to make doubly sure that Jesus was dead, the legionnaire drove his lance between the ribs upward through the pericardium and into the heart. John 19, 34 states, And immediately there came out blood and water. Thus there was an escape of watery fluid from the sac surrounding the heart and the blood on the interior of the heart. This is rather conclusive post-mortem evidence that Jesus had in fact died not the usual crucifixion death by suffocation, but of heart failure due to shock and constriction of the heart by the fluid in the pericardium. Consider the unimaginable now. The very centurion in charge of the crucifixion of the Son of God, apparently realizing who Jesus was in that moment. Scripture says that in that fateful moment, the soldier acknowledged the king that he had just mocked, tortured, and coldly crucified. It would be fair to assume we will see that soldier in heaven. I spent this last week with um, um, 15 combat-wounded veterans wounded in their body and in their spirit. On Friday, we took those veterans from the outskirts of D.C. into D.C. and we walked the uh, many war memorials with them. I had seen these memorials before, um, but I had never seen them like this. This time I, I saw them through the wounds of war. I started to notice something uh, throughout the throughout the day. Arlington National Cemetery. Um, one Marine desperate to find the marker of a, a fellow Marine who had recently just been killed in action. Section 55, row 236. He found his friend. And then the uh, Vietnam Memorial. The reflection of the wall of two of the veterans and their service dogs. 
the Korean Memorial, um, the scene of the of the many soldiers in statue walking a hill reflecting into its memorial wall. The grandeur of the World War II memorial, its massiveness representing the massive worldwide casualties. Estimated well over 50 million. If, if post-war casualties were included, some estimates give up to 80 million. And so its grandeur matched the loss. I noticed something as we, we went from memorial to memorial. There were moments where some of the veterans um, were painfully low and mournful. But surprisingly, there were other moments that became... Uh, Photo opportunities with friends, brothers. And there were smiles in the midst of painful memorials. And there were there were arms around shoulders and there were hugs and there were there were there were moments of laughter and and at first I'll confess I thought that's not right. <laughs> it's not right. These memorials represent a great deal of sacrifice, a great deal of pain, and the wounds inflicted. But then I realized that in different moments in, in one man's life or in different seasons of many lives, there are moments for for tears and there are moments for joyful smiles and laughter. All in the midst of the wounds of war. So, today as you come to this table, after hearing what we've heard, I would hope that you shake your, your head in shame as you imagine men spitting upon the God of all the universe. But let at least your heart smile as you realize that what was meant for evil, God has intended for good. For what this table represents is that hope is restored. No greater love, no greater representation of love is that, that, that one man would lay down his life for his friends. God would have you and I be his friends. And he has made a way for us to be called friends, brothers, sisters, children of God. Children of God. So I'm going to pray in a moment and then I'm going to ask you to stand and we're going to, we're going to continue our worship and song. And um, I'm going to ask that uh, for the first song, you just um, you participate in worship and you, uh, you embrace the words of the song. And then after the first song, into the second song, you are free to uh, come and partake of communion. Understanding the travesty 
but doing this in remembrance of He who laid down His life willingly for us. So let your hearts be joyful as you partake this morning. Let them be sober, but let them be joyful. For the God of the universe has come to the earth and given His life so that you and I might have eternity with the Father in heaven. He sits on the throne now, resurrected. And I believe he's probably, kids, slid to the edge of his throne to witness what's going on here. And he's happy that we remember. He's happy that we remember. So stand with me. May our songs be uh, worshipped from the depths of our heart. Father God, I ask that you would... um, Grant us your presence for the next next few moments as we as we conclude this sobering moment with a celebration of your goodness, your generosity, and your willingness to sacrifice for us. We um, we get the picture, and we are humbled, but we rejoice. We rejoice at what you've done for us. You have made a way. You've given your life so that that ours is redeemed. So we partake of your sacrifice, Lord. And we remember we sing hopefully this morning Lord with uh, with renewed hearts these songs and these prayers we offer in the name of crucified son our cornerstone listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.